Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm excited to have with me Chalcedon's Vice President, Martin Selbredi, and he's going to talk about his September 2022 essay in Chalcedon's publication, Arise and Build, entitled The Scope of Healing. Now, when Martin writes, the first time through, you get his point, but it requires a couple of passes through to understand the depth of what he's saying and how well he relates one aspect of scripture to another to show it as a systematic whole. So the question I'm going to pose and we're going to discuss today is, will God heal the nations? Martin, you're, first of all, welcome. Yeah, pleasure to be here. All right. So your essay was the scope of healing. Let's start off with your perspective on healing and why you think it's not only neglected, but often disdained. What we have here is an injured world, and it's injured in all its parts because uh, sin, it's a very uh, insidious effect. It affects everything. That's why we talk about total depravity, that every part of man's heart and soul and the work of his hands is affected by his rebellion against God. And, and the world reflects that rebellion against his creator. And therefore, everything is, is, is injured as a result of that fact. And so when Christ comes, is sent by the Father to the world to redeem it, uh, all these injuries are to be uh, healed. That's the purpose. We have a relationship with God that is to be healed, and that's done through the atonement. But that's not the extent of the atonement. It goes much farther in terms of uh, the things that it applies to, the liberties that are going to be uh, generated by it uh, across the entire creation. And that's why it's important to look at the concept of healing and realize that we have a very restricted view of it. We've inherited this view that's kind of limited in and focused it on healing from injury and sickness only. Uh, we don't really think in terms of the other kinds of healing that actually dominate in Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, the word healing, the three Hebrew words for it, are always used in a metaphorical sense and not necessarily for a healing of an injury, of a personal injury, a human injury, like a, a wound or uh, an illness. Uh, it's always used in a very, very different sense. And uh, that's why I started the articles uh, with a scan back, a throwback, if you will, uh, to a previous article where the words of healing and applying a bandage were to the walls of Jerusalem as Nehemiah was rebuilding them showing that these exact same terms are used for construction of a wall that's been broken down, a physical wall that can be also healed and back to, back to functionality, back to running as it's supposed to be as a bulwark of protection and a refuge from external enemies and to protect the city inside it. So this concept of healing is much broader, much wider, and that's why the article's title was The Scope of Healing, because we want, I wanted people to expand their thinking and to uh, go past our current understanding of healing to see that it applies to 
everything that humans do, everything that we put our hands to, every cultural aspect can be healed. It's not just relationships. It's not just the human body. Uh, it's also things in our culture that can be healed. It's also the land itself that can be healed. Uh, there's no limit to what God intends his son to heal by the shedding of his blood and by the Holy Spirit coming down to purify everything. Uh, there's a burning and a healing process. There's a smiting and a healing process in scriptures. And we need to expound on them and understand them because if we don't, we don't actually understand what Christ came for. We're going to personalize it and shrink in and focus in only on us and not on the much wider things that was in the eye of the Father when he sent his Son to redeem the world. Okay, so you make the point that God can heal. But don't you think a greater point might be that anything that has not been touched by the blood of Christ requires healing? So it's not like, can God do it? Everything must be healed because everything is wounded. That's right. The... uh and that's the point. We have a crooked world, but the scriptures throughout inform us that it's God's intention to make the crooked things straight. Uh, and crooked also is in the terms of a crooked man's arm, for example, that's also to be made straight. Uh, in the same way that if you have a crooked culture or a crooked economy, God's way pa- uh, maps out the way to healing, that if you apply these bombs from scripture these solutions from scripture these uh healing strategies from scripture the healing is guaranteed because this is god's world and when we treat it the way god tells us to treat it when we apply god's uh sanctions and his um requirements then the results come forward i talk about for example and you probably get into this a little later the healing of poverty god has provided a way to heal poverty completely 100% and yet, it's a we don't go down that path. We have much more expensive uh, and catastrophic ways to try to deal with poverty and never fix the problem because there's only one way that fixes that problem, and that's God's way. Man's way is a way to say we don't need the God of healing. We are the physicians. We are the ones who can tell you what to do. Uh, all the, the cultural diseases can be solved with our vaccines, if you will, uh, our economic vaccines and our scientific vaccines. Just right. uh, accept our solutions to these problems, uh, but uh, reject God's. And as a consequence, we encounter this verse in Jeremiah twice appears where Jeremiah says that the prophets of his time, they were healing the wounds of the people lightly or slightly, meaning that there was the promise of healing and there was healing sounding words, but the actual counsel being given was guaranteed not to solve a single problem. It would just create a brief illusion of maybe touching the problem, but when push came to shove, the problem only got worse and deeper, and Israel was finding itself closer and closer to exile and deportation to Babylon as a result. So what that tells me is that there is always the call for false healing. So when we're talking about the scope of healing, we need to talk about the scope of biblical uh, healing in its fullest intention or span of the word, Fullest meaning of the word healing, meaning healing across all aspects of culture, society, the world at large, even the physical creation, uh, and humanistic ideas, humanistic uh, uh, counterfeit to biblical mm-hmm. healing. And uh, there's a world of difference between the two. Uh, they both make promises, but only one can keep their promise, and that's God himself. 
within right. the ways that he's uh, articulated for us and laid down for us in Scripture. And we either are going to uh, follow God's counsel and walk in his ways and actually realize the healing uh, that will then extend into the future, or we'll follow man's ways, and which are all premised on the principle of the fall of being autonomous and determining what's good and bad and healing and not healing on our own without reference to God. And then we will heal our wounds slightly. We'll put band-aids on compound fractures across the board and be shocked to find out that uh, all our problems are getting worse and not better the more we insist on doubling down on humanistic healing versus scriptural notion of healing by applying the word of God to everything. Because right. what we, what the healing is always associated with darkness and despair. But we read in scripture that the entering in of thy word bringeth light. And that's the key is that healing comes when we turn from our ways to God's ways. And then the culture responds. Economics responds. This is laid out in Haggai 1.13. Uh, and that's the key is that we have a path to healing all the woes of the world. And they're many and they're huge and it's an enormous burden. But if Christians would just take the first small steps, uh, we will not despise the day of small things. Uh, things that were broken down when Zechariah uh, quoted that, we're in the process of being rebuilt. Yes. And, and so that's the key, is that we should shun the humanistic solutions, even though they're across the board, they're, they're in our face in this culture, in society, in social media, in the news, in the mainstream news anyway. And uh, those solutions being proffered and pushed down our throats are going to make our situation worse. They will not heal our nation. They will not heal any nation. They're going to continue to wound them and keep them in a dangerously wounded and angry state. Yes. Okay. So one of the headings in the essay, actually the first heading that appears, is you ask the question, what do pietism and humanism have in common? And you make this statement. You said, regrettably, pietism's commitment to the intimately personal dimension of God's word often ends up in functional lockstep with humanism. So in other words, both pietism and humanism shrink the domain of the scripture, correct? Correct. It's like a honey, uh, we shrunk the gospel kind of problem. And in here, honey, we shrunk the uh, scope of where scripture applies and should be applied. Uh, there's a such thing as a focus that is misplaced. Uh, we, and this is what Jesus says when he talks about the weightier matters of the law. He says, these ought to you have done without leaving the others undone. So we need to prioritize, but we also are to, uh, are on the hook for everything that God requires of us. So we cannot play fast and loose and say, well, I didn't uh, steal from anybody. I only killed three people. So uh, by and large, I'm, I'm covering half the law quite well. Thank you very much. Yeah. But we'd say we see the flaw in that immediately. So it's not as if uh, pietism is seeking to be in lockstep with humanism. But this is an artifact that when you shrink the domain of what you think the Bible applies to in your own life and in the life of the culture, you say, you know, they're supposed to operate on natural law. Then we're going to put them back on a humanistic basis, like it or not, because there's no reference to scripture. That's why I reference Isaiah 8.20, which I think is about as safe a litmus test as you can apply, which is to say, to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to these, it's because there is no light in them. And what you get then is a council of darkness. <laughs> yes. So it's interesting. Every time we get close to an election cycle, there are lots of promises made 
But to the astute listener, and what I mean by astute is someone who understands the premise that without the law and the testimony, there is no light, you get promises that don't get to the heart of the issue. So let's say homelessness or poverty. Well, we're going to talk about how we're going to get these people out of the off the streets and into shelters, but that's not the root of the problem. And so long as you're putting band-aids on a cancer, it might look better for a while, but it's not really going to get better, is it? No, no. There's always, uh, I will have to say this, that in the modern era of the media, they're always able to point the camera selectively to make things look good, to put the so-called lipstick on the pig. You know, I remember when Sam Blumenfeld kept being uh, told, well, here's a school, a public school that's doing pretty good. So they're pointing out this school over here, which doesn't seem to match up with his indictment. To get that one school, they ignore the 2,000 schools that are doing worse than Sam said they were doing doing uh, because again we've pointed the camera in such a way that we're creating a narrative and, and shaping it to taste and that is a problem because that means that your doctor is uh, giving you showing you fake x-rays saying see the bones healed you can go out and run that marathon and in actual fact the bones not healed you run the marathon you're going to break the bone worse than it ever was uh, and i'm again now using the symbol of the body to show what happens in our culture you know, we're being told there is no inflation, et cetera. And of course, when the numbers say different, we're told to ignore the numbers because they're deceptive. Well, which is it? <laughs> if the numbers were good, you would appeal to them. If the numbers are bad, you tell people, uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Exactly. Uh, with scripture, we don't have this problem of saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We say, pay attention to the man behind the curtain because he knows what's going on. And he's not the fraud that that particular wizard of uh, Frank Baum's creation was was a fraud. There's no fraud in God. And uh, we should be appealing to his word because, again, that is where the source of all knowledge and wisdom comes from. It's the way that the, the way can be made straight that has gone off the path. Of the tr- of truth and righteousness, um, that's the whole point. Actually, of uh, made out in Psalm one nineteen that uh, he shall make all uh, paths straight. That's what the Messiah came to do. It's actually a bit of a messianic prophecy in the middle of Psalm one nineteen. So we take that seriously, and it's not as if God doesn't lack for proof. There's proof that God's way works continually, and it, it is solid and powerful proof. Uh, and it's a witness and a testimony to what happens when the light's allowed to shine. And guess what we do with it? We're either ignorant of it or uh, just because we didn't pay attention. Or if we're brought to our attention, we dismiss it. And that is where the problem comes in. Because many people uh, believe that the law of God is not for our time in any way, shape, or form. We agree it's not there for justification. But it is certainly a light unto our feet, and to say, turn the light off and keep walking in the dark, is the what I'm going to guarantee you is that you will injure your culture worse and worse and worse until such time as you learn the hard lessons. Exactly, that, yeah. yeah. So when Christ ascends, or prior to Christ's ascension, he gave the Great Commission, and it was about making disciples. And you don't make disciples by putting a gun to their head. You don't make disciples by paying them off. And you point out that one of the problems with getting people inside and outside the church 
to embrace biblical solutions has to do with the fact that they just don't seem sophisticated enough. And you cite the episode in scripture where Naaman, the leper, comes to be healed. Explain why you isolated and used that episode as an example and how it's indicative of the situation today. Surely. Uh, My point there was that the Bible has actually very simple solutions to problems. They're not complicated. You know, and, and, uh, this seems to get under our skin because our pride, our, our sense of, uh, uh, self-importance gets in the way of appreciating God's solutions. So we tend to poo-poo them and treat them as uh, ridiculous and dated and intended for an agrarian society from 3000 years ago, but certainly unfit to be applied today. You know, we, we've outgrown the idea of money that's based on a physical currency like, uh, or metal like gold or silver. Uh, and consequently we, uh, extol the value and the power of the fiat currencies and our economies all suffer from the effects of the fact that we're drinking that poison, that toxic form of money instead of using what God requires, uh, which is money that is not capable of being inflated, of uh, being debauched where the silver cannot become dross. So heading back to the example of Naaman, he's a Syrian general, and he's informed by uh, a slave, a Hebrew slave girl in his household, that uh, there is a prophet in Israel that could heal him of his leprosy. And so he takes the enormous amount of capital with him, I think over a million dollars worth, uh, three million dollars, so it's a huge number, uh, that he, because he was a rich man, with him to see Elisha, and to be cured of his leprosy, which was a plague to him. But Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. He sent his servant out, and the servant informed the general, just uh, dip yourselves, wash yourself seven times in the river Jordan. Now, there are much more beautiful rivers in Syria. The Jordan is a muddy stream by comparison to the kind of rivers in Syria. So it didn't make any sense, and it was insulting to Naaman. So he uh, planned to go back angry and not do what he's told. But his servants who were with him, his aides, had some very profound advice. He said, you know, if he had told you, if Elisha had started you to do some great thing, you would have done it. So how much more not to do the simple thing he told you to do? What do you have to lose, basically? And so he rethinks it, and he heads out to the Jordan, and having dunked seven times in the Jordan, his skin was cleansed completely. So that's a huge indictment of the gods of Syria, because he finds out that the god of Israel was the true one, and the others didn't even exist. They were Their counsels and their attempt to cleanse and heal him were worthless. But the thing that should stick out in this message is how simple the solution was, and it's one that he would not have done because he wanted to do something uh, big and an imposing, something what I call a Herculean task. It needed to be something massive uh, that he had to do. To uh, He had to either pay off a lot of money to the prophet to be healed, but to have it done for free in a dirty river, uh, that didn't make any sense to him. It totally turned his world upside down. That's such a simple thing, which could have done the trick, if you will. Uh, and we have to understand his reaction it's our reaction. He is mirroring what we would think if someone says, oh, do you have a compound fracture? Um, tell you what, 
uh, tap your sh- uh, shoes three times and, uh, <laughs> and say amen and it'll be healed. And we'll laugh and, and, and say, you're not taking me seriously. Well, when if God is behind the healing, it happens the way the prophet's going to say. The prophet was on the hook that if he, if he wasn't healed, the prophet would have been a liar and could have been stoned for it. People don't recognize that Elisha was on the hook with that counsel. So, uh, and he didn't mind putting himself because God told him to give that solution. So when God gives a solution, it's guaranteed, regardless how um, humble and modest the means are. And most of God's mechanisms for healing the uh, hurt of the world are modest and humble. They start at the uh, level of the small, the small things. That's why we're told, do not despise the day of small things, because God is in that work. When we are turning to do God, God's uh, change God's world, God's way, his spirit is with us in that process. And therefore, we have omnipotent assistance in it. And if we are uh, aiming to fulfill what his word requires in each of these situations, then the power of his word uh, is present and it changes the world. It's a transformative world. We're told in Isaiah uh, and elsewhere that uh, the word that I send out will not return unto me void. And this includes his law. His law doesn't return unto his void. Uh, when we walk in his law, then the covenantal promises behind it go into effect. Then the healings that are implicit in it are realized. And this is something that men who are very self-important will not accept. They are insistent and adamant that we must have massive plans. If we want to get rid of poverty, we need to have trillions of dollars and massive government programs to solve it. We don't want to solve it God's way because that will never work. Exactly. Is, yeah, yeah. So, but that's the point that the Naaman example is, is that we need to see ourselves in the mirror. We are Naaman. We want to do things the big way. We assume that every big problem needs a big, massive solution. We don't reject the idea that big problems will actually be resolved with small, modest, godly solutions and that those will actually have a huge impact over time and yeah. heal the thing that's broken. So what's interesting to me is what happens afterwards. Um, Naaman goes back and he's had this very, very genuine um, experience of having been a leper and not. So the personal aspect of God healing often then will result in cultures being affected by it. So it would be hard pressed for Naaman to go back and people not notice that this general suddenly was not a leper anymore. So he's got a testimony. And so it's not just about personal healing, whereas God does heal us in all aspects of our being, but then we're meant to do something about it. The end result isn't just that we're healed, that we go out and we share the message of the reliability of God's law. That is correct. He became a witness and a testimony to what was going on. Uh, we didn't have that much going on within, in Israel in this regard. And uh, Jesus draws attention to this. He says, there are many lepers in Israel, but God cleansed only Naaman. Mm-hmm. So there was something very important about the Gentile being saved from his leprosy and being healed. And then taking this back to his nation, because uh, he was very, very high up in the, in the hierarchy there. He was, it's his responsibility to help the king uh, worship his pagan god. So, uh, and of course, there was a heartfelt discussion between Elisha and uh, Naaman about whether that was legitimate or not. Uh, and the answer was, go in peace. Uh, 
you he can be content that his his relationship with uh, the Lord God was not going to be compromised by his fulfilling his current important obligation to the king of Syria. Who was the person who allowed him to go? So yeah. it isn't so much. And that's, that's another thing that happens to believers. They think that they have to then divorce themselves from the world. First of all, I don't think he could divorce himself from the king of Syria because he was under the authority of the king of Syria. But because of his important position, he got a chance to talk to the king of Syria quite a lot. And so being able to continue to share the reality of God's healing probably affected things much more than if he resigned from his post and just go and went and sat in his house and contemplated the fact that he no longer had leprosy. Right. And it's certainly interesting that later in history, Syria had an important impact on uh, uh, early Christianity. A lot of the um, texts of the uh, New Testament hailed from that part of the world. So it was a source of the propagation of God's word from that quarter. Right. Okay, there's another portion of scripture that you highlight, and I'll quote, and you say, the parable of the Good Samaritan illustrates how Christians have been trained to walk around problems in their path. Talk about that a little bit. Right. Of course, it's a well-known parable, and the religious leaders who saw the man who was uh, beset by thieves and left for dead, uh, they had religious reasons for navigating around what they said could be a potentially dead or dying body. And that was going to get in the way of their liturgical requirements and their priestly functions and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the Samaritan, he intervened. He saw that somebody was in desperate need of healing. He was left for dead and could die there in what I call the ditch, the side of the road, technically. And he intervened. And there's something that Jesus points out about this, that uh, unlike the other men, one man, man did what God required, which was when they see a need, you're not to be an idle bystander to it. This is actually laid out <laughs> in Scripture itself. Um, you know, thou shalt not stand idly by uh, innocent blood. And so, too, here, he t- takes steps to uh, pour the w- oil in the wounds and put him on his donkey and set him up to heal, complete his healing at the inn at his own expense. Well-known story. My position is that that story uh, not only explains what our, what our neighbor is, but it also tells us that, that the religious authorities often advise or, or by their example have us walk around problems that we actually are supposed to deal with. And I think this happens on a large scale because it's not just that he was left in the ditch. Every one of the parables has a much wider application. And I take it to the widest possible point. You know, we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because all the thoughts that are captive to the obedience of Satan, it's the only other choice, are being uh, mangled and harmed and distorted and bent um, to serve man's autonomy as opposed to uh, God's rule over us. And therefore, I actually then personified the man in the dish. It says, just call him culture with a capital C. And here's culture injured in the ditch. And actually, we do see that in the 21st, 20th century and the 21st century. Culture has indeed been injured by humanism um, with potentially fatal wounds and is left there with the wounds oozing and the blood dripping out. And all these, uh, our economies, our arts, our crafts, our sciences, our, 
are all damaged. Uh, and are we going to walk around them or engage them? There are those who say that that's not a spiritual concern. We should only be worried about saving souls, not saving cultures. Even if the culture is uh, being destroyed and demolished, don't worry about it. It's not our business. Well, this is exactly the position of those who walked around the Samaritan. They were not interested in solving the problem that they saw because they had theological reasons to excuse themselves from that service. But we're not allowed to have that. We we cannot judge that. We, We need to be aware that if there's a need, we need to actually respond to it. And there's actually a passage of scripture that I have spent some time on in several different Arise and Build episodes. That's in Isaiah 32, where it talks about the necessity for all of us to become a refuge and a rock and a hiding place um, and a culvert for uh, those who need assistance or anything that needs to be assisted. Because as that passage goes on in uh, Isaiah 32, it extends to things like speech. You know, he said, no longer shall the uh, uh, vile person uh, be called noble. And that's interesting because it means that there's a reformation of language. We're not going to see uh, things called by names that they aren't. We're not going to see uh, a distortion of language. We will see what one expositor calls the explosion of social lies. Well, we live in an era of social lies. And Isaiah predicts the the dissolution, the explosion of all social lies. But there's a sequence of events by which that happens. One is in verse 1. Isaiah 32, 1, that, the, the, that there's a king who rules in righteousness and princes who do the same. In other words, we have a restoration of uh, the, the civil uh, authorities under Christ. And then we have in, all individuals also functioning to restore things that are broken, to be a culvert and a hiding place and a rock, a boulder uh, uh, to shade people in need and to quench the the, um, the thirsts of culture and society. And then we see the social implications of this in the subsequent verses, uh, and then the explosion of social lies and the reformation of language. And I think we're in a desperate way here because we have professors being fired from universities because they're not using the compelled or coerced language that's being required of them, the right pronouns, etc. Well, this problem is uh, stems from failure to walk through the first steps of Isaiah 32, which lays out a complete social program for a culture in there based on a righteousness and based on truth and based on God's participation and our participation with God in that process. We are not bystanders in this process, and therefore bystander liability applies to us if we decide we're going to ignore the problems. Then we fail to actually live up to being actual men anymore. We're, we're not men and women. We're uh, dupes and we are complicit because we're part of the problem and not part of the solution. Yes. But if we're part of the solution, we're going to see wide-reaching, far-reaching changes in our culture because Isaiah 32 promises it. I didn't get into go into detail, though I have exposed and discussed that passage in previous issues. About 4,500 words, and I spend most of my time chopping away my initial <laughs> draft, which is always way too big. Right. But it's an important passage of Scripture that tells us what the scope of healing is going to actually be when we take the first steps to do what's right, to do what God requires in all these areas, and they are wide-ranging. And that's why I always appeal to this verse in Psalm 119, 
think it's 96b, says, uh, I've seen an end to all perfection, but that commandment is exceeding broad. God's word applies to a whole bunch of things broadly. And yes. it applies to the entire world. So the entire world will one day be under God's law. And when it is, it'll be remarkably well healed from all the injuries that have been inflicted by autonomous uh, humanism. When you follow God's law, aside from not getting the bad consequences of disobeying it, there's the blessings that come along with it. And certainly your essay and this podcast is not going to be the definitive final word, but you do highlight um, some specific areas. You talk about healing of poverty, healing a national economy full of debt, healing the earth in terms of um, ecological things. So how do the commandments of God in the order God gave them, which is a point you make in here that it's important that we understand that before you could ever get to thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill, you have to get the first table of the law. Speak about that if you would. Right. I was actually drawing attention to a fascinating book about completing capitalism, how doing that would heal the world. Uh, and the premise of the book is that the various Sabbaths of Scripture have huge ramifications in the business world, and from there, the ramifications extend into the world at large from that entry point. When you take the Word of God seriously in respect to the weekly Sabbath and the annual land Sabbath and then the Jubilee, then this has ramifications in terms of how God remunerates our use of time. And so the example of the authors in that particular book lays out a, a, a program by which all sorts of economic miracles, if you will, the miracles to us because we live under uh, Keynesianism, and so these things will never happen under a Keynesian regime. But in a biblical regime, when you put all these things together and apply them, you have ramifications at the personal level, you have it at the level of nature, the renewing of the land through the land Sabbath, uh, and also economic consequences uh, all the way up to the uh, biblical jubilee, which is the double Sabbath at the 50-year mark that prevents an economy from overheating. And so that redistributes uh, profits in a way that is godly and not just a matter of um, seizure of assets and, and uh, redistribution on Marxist grounds, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's a godly way to uh, uh, refresh an economy uh, righteously uh, in an honest mechanism through a remuneration mechanism that involves restitution uh, at a scale that God has predetermined. And so because this has ramifications from the individual, all the way to the land, to families, and social implications all the way up to um, massive economic changes that are implied in the Jubilee. Uh, that is why it's the fourth commandment and actually comes before the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, etc. God has actually ordered the commandments in the correct way. This is an insight of the authors. It's not original with me, but the point is well taken. We always wonder why are these things in this particular order. And now these authors have pointed out exactly what happens when you take the all the Sabbaths, not just the one, but all the Sabbaths seriously. They have such a huge range of impact in healing the world that that's why they're put up forward, because you start to rob from God and from one another when you ignore it. 
and you also kill one another when you ignore this yes. because that remuneration. So in essence, all the other commandments are already embraced in the Sabbath legislation. Uh, I use the example of the land Sabbaths. By the time the first kings came on board, they stopped paying any attention to what God required with the land Sabbath because for almost 500 years, they ignored the legislation and they figured God was winking at it. God is not doing anything for us, so we're just going to continue to plow the land nonstop every seventh year when we should let it lie follow and heal. No, we're just going to force the land to continue producing, and it's not allowed no rest. And then Jeremiah informs everybody, he said, my land shall enjoy her Sabbaths. God's going to throw you out for 70 years, so the 70 myth sabbatical years will be fulfilled by the land, and it will rest its 70 Sabbaths that you deprived it of. Right. So they were exiled for those 70 years. And so God was serious about it, even though he took half a millennium before he enforced it. But he enforced it. And so uh, otherwise the land would have been ruined completely. It was far more ruined by the uh, fact that the Jews failed, the Hebrews failed to keep the land Sabbath that God ordered them to do than from the fact that it was saw, uh, plowed under by salt by the Romans under Titus. Right. The salt can be cleansed, but 70 years worth of lost Sabbaths, that's serious business. So, so you mean to say that if we observed God's land Sabbaths, um, the blessings would be there, but the consequences are more um, dangerous than large portions of CO2 in our environment? It would actually do interesting things in terms of sequestration, assuming, by the way, that CO2 is as dangerous as is alleged, because that gets into the whole topic of whether we're getting straight signals from uh, climate alarmists, because here we have a clash between uh, the skeptics and the alarmists, and the, the two shall not meet, and they don't treat each other very well. <laughs> they, they malign one another. So this is God's world, first and foremost. I tell you what the alarmists do is they say, we need to dump this dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, because that's the problem. Uh, man is just another animal, and he needs to back off of all of his industrial uh, aspirations. And this uh, dominion uh, mandate is exactly why we're in this world of hurt right now. And then they cite their alleged statistics. Uh, and so they, it's a frontal attack on uh, on God and what God has called man to do. But by the same token, man was not supposed to take a dominion that was autonomous and uh, self-willed. He was to do it God's way. That meant that all the requirements that protect the land were also to be enforced. And so you cannot do a, um, a smorgasbord, you know, pick and choose. We are uh, the whole God's program only works when you use all of it. Every jot of tittle is important. Yeah. If you miss some of those things, then you, you know, Jesus said, "Ye do err, not knowing the power of God or the Scriptures." And so usually most errors come from not seeing that there's a more scripture to be brought to bear. That's why we have a systematic application of all of God's word, not a piecemeal. You cannot, for example, say, oh, we need to get rid of all these regulations, corporate regulations. I talk about this a lot when I do economic lectures. Dump all these regulations. Well, that's fine, except you also have to get rid of what? The limited liability corporation, because what happened with the limited liability corporation is that we severed responsibility and accountability from human action. So we subsidized irresponsible conduct because we made it very, very difficult to hold anyone accountable unless you could pierce the corporate veil. And this so, is something that's showing up in terms of giving, um, putting 
drug companies in a position where they can't be sued and yet they can you can see correlations between the use of a product and people getting sick or in some kind some right. case dying so it's very the, real today the bible has a doctrine of full liability full accountability it's not infinite um like we try to apply to doctors and it's not limited like we try to apply to most corporations which therefore are not fearful uh, the big example here that I mentioned is that when Union Carbide had a gas leak in Bhopal, India, people in uh, India called for the execution of the uh, executive board of Union Carbide. In the interview, that made sense. There was this is murder. This is you guys killed us, and therefore someone has to pay. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that's the solution, but with limited liability, you're basically saying there's absolutely no recourse um, you know, against any of the individuals who made the decisions that ended up with a, a fatal a gas leak. Yes. So, and the same thing goes with the harm to the the um, creation itself, the environment. I like prefer to call it a creation, the creation, because it shows that God's ownership of it yes. and His expectation of our stewardship over it. I'm glad that you uh, interviewed E. Kelvin Beisner, Dr. Beisner couple of podcasts back because it's always valuable to get his insights on this because he's one of the best Christian writers and thinkers on the matter of how scripture applies to ecology and environmentalism. And And as he puts it, the stewardship of the creation. Right. Which is, of course, the sub uh, name for the Cornwall Alliance, which he uh, found and and, and runs. So that means there are biblical solutions out there in these areas like the environment, and we don't take advantage of them. But going back to the original question, yes, the fourth commandment actually is important because these Sabbaths actually are forms of remuneration after its own kind, as the authors of this particular book, which I I mentioned in the article, uh, bring out. It's it's a very, very powerful read. Uh, Tim Yarbrough brought it to my attention, and I acquired it, and I'm very glad I did because it had insights there that uh, in many respects echoed what Dr. Rashoni was writing about when he wrote on the uh, land Sabbaths in Leviticus. Uh, chapters 25, 26 in the Jubilee, because the Jubilee principle actually has legs, as we say, economically, because it, uh, the implications of it are huge. So I had a student recently saying, wow, there's just so many laws in the Bible. I mean, 613. And I pointed out to the student that if he looked at his particular state, um, I'm not sure that we don't have 613 laws being created every month. So Isn't it interesting that not only has God given us his word, which is where you get the blueprints for all this, but he's given us expositors and teachers. And I can't recommend more highly people going through, first and foremost, the Institutes of Biblical Law, because that's where you get all the implications of what else does commandment number two pertain to? What else does commandment number nine pertain to? But one of the other things you point out here is that God is not stingy with healing. What did you mean by that? Well, that was when we're talking about the situation in Haggai. In Haggai, we find that the people are suffering because they have a hole in their purse. They put money in their pocket and it disappears. God seems to be blowing on the production of their grain and uh, in the fields. And so because they are dwelling in sealed houses, houses with ceilings, while the uh, foundation timbers of God's house are rotting, they have spent no attention at all looking after God's house. They only cared about their own. 
and uh, God resents this because that meant that they were their own center, if you will, and God was not the center at all of their concerns or of their uh, city and their nation. And so consequently, these were covenantal uh, sanctions that God applied in making it that their money just drifted out of their pockets, if you will. Uh, they just could not, they were living paycheck to paycheck, if you want to use the uh, 20th century terminology. Uh, but they repented, you know, and it, uh, they listened to the prophet and they went and started to make the intention to move toward the forest to gather the timber. And what we read in the passage is that the moment that they actually have an inclination to do what God has instructed them to do and to take care of what God requires, God lifts the sanctions. He blesses them at that point. He turns from a very uh, stern, uh, reproving tone to a very tender tone. And his actions against them go from being an opposition to supportive of them and sealing the holes in their purses and taking away the problem with the productivity. Because now at least they're on the right step. So uh, we're stingy because we want to wait and see before uh, we respond to somebody. But God actually anticipates our conduct and acts accordingly. So it does not take a lot for us to change the situation in our cult, in our country. We just have to take the first steps. What's the problem? We don't even yeah. take the first steps, and then we shrug and say, "Oh, it's not going to. Nothing's happening." Well, if you take the first steps, you might be very, very surprised. But that means you know, swallowing our pride and our uh, autonomy and sense of being self-willed and, and will worship, doing it our way instead of God's way, and admitting that our way is terrible. Yes, and our also, way has failed. Instead of saying, well, what difference will one person make? Well, what difference did Naaman's servant who said, get in the water, okay? We're not going to go all the way back and you won't even do what he said. So we can have an effect in our spheres of influence. Yes. And then it sort of trickles out, like when the rock hits the, the water and you see these, you know, circles going out. So Aside from the scripture telling us not to despise the day of small things, we can look back in our own lives and realize that oftentimes we woke up to the reality of God's truth by just what seemed like happenstance. So I just ran into that person, but it does have the ripple effect. I always liked how uh, Reverend Peter Allison answered the question, what can we do about the economy? What can we do at the level of our own homes to heal the economy, seeing as how it's built on humanistic foundations, particularly a foundation of debt. It's a debt capital. It's monetized debt. And he answered very simply, reduce your debt, preferably to zero. But every step of you reducing your debt actually pushes back against the money that's illegitimately based on that debt. So every step that Christians take to free themselves from being a servant to the lender is a step in the right direction, and God blesses each step. Uh, incrementally. You may not be able to get out of all your debt instantly, but you can certainly make the steps and God's going to bless that process. And we free ourselves from the uh, debt servitude in the process, but we also change the monetary picture to the extent that we're doing that. And it'll have large ramifications if more people catch the vision. But no one's going to catch the vision if no one's going to take the first step, because no one wants to be the first one, right? Now, I remember, um, this is way back in the mid-80s, we had just been introduced to Dr. Rushduni's writings and Cal Seedon, and um, I was reading in his book, Law and Liberty, about the very issue of debt. 
And I remember telling my husband, um, you know how we thanked God for this particular vacation we just took? Maybe we should be thanking MasterCard because we did it all on debt. And interestingly enough, when we actually asked Dr. Rush Dooney, so we get out of debt and then we tithe. And he's like, no, 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 no. You tithe and you get out of debt. In other words, you can't just say, I'm only going to focus on one aspect of it. The tithe is a very important aspect of um, biblical economics, which is how we would get rid of a Leviathan state. So maybe we can't do it fast and maybe we can't do it in big ways but we can get into the Jordan and start washing. Right. And there's something that you said about that. That's a, a dirty river. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing pleasant about the steps that were taken by Naaman. He wasn't looking forward to it, uh, but he did it. And sometimes we have to have a similar attitude. Uh, a very common one that you and I know well is that if a family decides we want to pull our kid out of public school, we want to homeschool them or put them in a Christian school, at that point, that family is going to be paying twice for that yes. kid's education. They're going to be paying for the homeschooling materials and the time and investment in their own children. And the loss of maybe income for one parent. Yes. And they're going to be paying the t- property taxes, either directly or indirectly, that fund the public school that they're not even going to use. But you see, Rush points out, there's a way out, but it's not an easy way out. We've dug ourselves a hole, and now we're going to have to spend some of our energy getting out of the hole and so now you have to pay twice. But that's what godliness entails when you're when the culture has put you in the hole. You're going to have to spend your energy digging yourself back out. You see, the first thing to do is to stop digging if you're in a hole. <laughs> and then, of <laughs> yes. course, uh, we're not even doing that very well. And that's why you know, we, we have this problem where the world is in its own set of holes. And by the way, the state, current humanistic state, prefers that we be in the holes because we can more easily be controlled if we are in debt. Uh, and if we are not in charge. So the second we ex- uh, exercise self-government, we can heal our families from the plague of the public school, uh, training them up to be humanists. Instead, we turn our children over back to the kingdom of God and raise them as citizens of God's kingdom first, and then you, the nation that we happen to live in is second. Uh, and that's where it becomes very, very interesting because, of course, the state wants to make a total claim on our lives, and we recognize only Christ's total claim on our lives and a derivative claim at best with the the, the state. That's so. The healing of the state as a as a entity is going to take a while because it's got the biggest cancer of all. It is uh, arguably eleven thousand times larger than it biblically has a right to be, and so it's a massively bloated mosquito with the blood of the people in it uh, of of 350 million people in it and the and we have called for that creation of that particular false god of the uh, of our particular country here in america and all these states out there function pretty much in lockstep they all function because they have uh, wounded their currencies they refuse to use a legitimate biblical currency they all are erected on fiat currency which is playing God and creating a value just by saying so, by putting printing something on a piece of paper. And uh, they have, therefore, uh, we read in the sixth chapter of Micah that the downfall of all nations that follow this path is going to be implosion from within. Uh, they'll be overthrown from from inside. It won't be external enemies. It'll be ta- it'll be destroyed from inside. It's an implosion. And why is because you have. The uh, treasures of wickedness in your uh, uh, tr- um, purses and in your closets, in your homes, 
you're not allowed to have fall, you know, a, a um, abomination currency. And, and any currency that's fluctuating in value, which ours does, is an abomination. So to have it on your person it presupposes your intent to use it. And it is a leg- illegitimate thing. So essentially, we're trafficking in economic fentanyl with all the dollar bills in our pocket and not wondering why our economy is dying uh, and, and hurting as bad as it is. It can all be healed. God has laid out the path for it. Yes. I think it is worth talking about that poverty healing, if you want me to spend a moment on it. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm going to reiterate, what, if someone doesn't read the article, they should hear this, is that the God's law, uh, which is laid out in Deuteronomy 14, for the poor tithe, it's, it amounts to 3.3% amortized of a voluntary donation directly to the poor. There's no administrative overhead. There's no bureaucracy involved. It goes straight to the poor people. And further on in Deuteronomy 15.4, it says, keep these commands, it says you will have no poor among you. A, a governmental promise there, a covenantal promise that uh, you will have poverty abolished. And Israel, after it came back from the captivity in Babylon, they're pretty serious about getting rid of idolatry and all these other things. And they were serious about the poor tithe. So serious that by the time of the Maccabean period, they had no more poor people to give the poor tithe to, which required that all the proceeds that were given, they couldn't stay with the people. That was not allowed. This is laid out in the book of Numbers. Uh, it, It had to go somewhere. So then it was turned into capital, into gold and silver, and sent on to Jerusalem for storage against the advent of a rainy day, shall we say. So they had 200 talents of gold and 400 talents of silver stored in Jerusalem from the poor tithe collection that couldn't be distributed because there were no poor people there. Yeah, wouldn't that be, um, that that would almost seem unbelievable or unattainable. But again, we should believe the fact that God's given us a prescription on how to do it. Right. When I lectured on this topic at at a Mars conference, I pointed out, that uh, Kurt Vonnegut had said that uh, he could find no more stirring symbol of man's humanity to man, man's humanity to man than the fire engine. And I said, I think the most stirring symbol is what happened here uh, in the Maccabean period when we record that there were no poverty at all in all of Israel. The entire nation was free of poor people. It didn't last too long because by the time Jesus walked around, you still have poor people uh, who would come back online because the nation again started violating God's laws. And that's why we have the poor widow throwing two mites in, which was all that she had. But circa 186 BC, we had solved the problem. So I said, so why are Christians not hammering this home? Why are we not saying the best example of man's humanity to man is following God's poor tithe and eradicating poverty in their nation, which Israel did, which proves it can be done using God's mechanism, not using a war on poverty that Lyndon B. Johnson began to to wage ineffectively, Mm -hmm. had cost four times as much and simply bloated the bureaucracy instead and worsened the problem because it had no social ramifications. God's poor tithe in, uh, required community to be expanded and intensified, not neglected and made in, in so what I would use, impersonal. It was a very personal thing with the poor tithe. So community was strengthened and not weakened as it is with bureaucracies to, uh, distributing out what I call subsistence level uh, wages to people uh, with welfare checks that are dribbled out 
and are not really terribly adequate. In the Portide system, it was actually very profoundly powerful. So we can heal poverty God's way, if we, and it's not an expensive way. It's very, very simple. And that's the problem. It's too simple. 3.3% voluntary, uh, tithe to resolve poverty and we won't do it. So we, but we will be taxed in four to five times that amount, throw the money at a bureaucracy and then put them in charge of it. And they will flop again and again as they have routinely done in trying to solve the problem. It's a problem that's not intended to be solved because the federal government uh, lives off of the illness of the patient, which is the populace. And yes. we, we are complicit with that because we like the terms of our hospital stay under their care. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because you have to go one step further. God never gave the institution of the civil government the uh, ministry of mercy. It was justice and defense. So anytime you have the civil government getting into helping the poor, doing something with homeless and not leaving it to individuals and the church, you're automatically going to be on the wrong track because God didn't give them that jurisdiction. Correct. Again, it's healing the wound of the people slightly. Yes. Okay. Before we conclude, because we're getting to the end of our time, I found myself as I was reading through a lot of the quotes that you pulled from scripture, and it reminded me of how many of our Christmas carols echo these things, healing in his wings, that um, blessings will be as far as the curse is found. So this has been accomplished before. This is not an untried thing. People understood it enough that they tied in Christ's incarnation and his death, resurrection, and ascension to the ability to do these things. That's right. I think we've lost track of the comprehensiveness of Scripture and the fact that where the word goes, uh, it heals. It's a healing word. Uh, And consequently, the Puritan era was aware of this. They didn't would even conceive of not applying the word of God or arguing for its non-application as so many people do today for various reasons, whether through dispensational thinking or through pietistic thinking or radical 2K, two-kingdom thinking, all these ways that uh, essentially uh, take God's word offline and don't apply it anymore, saying it's not for us, it was for maybe someone else, or it's a historical example that's of no longer any relevance. There's nothing more relevant than the Word of God at any point in time because it will stand when the universe is dust. The universe isn't going to outlive the Word of God. It's the other way around. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, the, the great hymn writers of the past were aware that we were talking about a, an amazing, a great atonement uh, and a great healing of the world that was to be affected ultimately by Christ and that God's people have a part in that process by turning toward him and being agents of that. Uh, I mentioned briefly that uh, Vishal Mangalwadi ties these trees in a, uh, both Revelation 22 and in Ezekiel 47, the trees that have leaves that are for the healing of the nations. He says, take a look at Psalm 1. You know, here we have these trees planted by rivers of waters that leaf, leaf never, never, never withers. It has a tongue twister, <laughs> never withers and uh, the, delivers its fruit in every season. And is a, and the, he, the trees, the leaves are for the healing of the nations, reiterated both places in both Ezekiel 47 and in uh, Revelation. And the idea that uh, Vishal is bringing out there is not 
restricted to him. If you go back to the Puritan era, look at the commentaries on Ezekiel 47 by William Greenhill, he says the exact same thing. He says these are the, uh, I put it in the footnote, unfortunately, so it's sitting, sitting there at the back of the article in small print, but worth looking at because, in fact, uh, this was the common position that the good works, the works of the law that were conducted by the Christians had the effect of healing the nations of which they were in. They were the healing agents of a society. This brings us back around to John Owen's position that upon all the glory shall be a defense. In other words, when God is glorified by us walking in his ways, God therefore provides a defense of the nation and of those people. And so our being effectual in applying God's word uh, creates a protection around the nation that has the blessing of people willing to continue the healing process by their labors, which are not in vain in the Lord, uh, but rather will follow us. And that's saying a, a big deal. So it's not an alien idea to say, oh, no, no, the healing of the nations, that happens after the second coming. We don't see that now. Uh, the Puritans, who had a much better grasp of Scripture than we do, uh, certainly were looking at Ezekiel 47, and they connected Psalm 1 with it quite nicely. It's not just new. It's not a new thing with Vishal Mangalwadi. You can find it uh, three or 400 years earlier in Christian scholarship when Christian scholarship was on a much more profound basis. So it has huge ramifications for us. We should realize that if you apply the whole word of God, you can expect amazing results. And because this is a broken world, the result to be expected is that he takes the broken and the crooked and he makes it straight and he heals it. And therefore, when we look at passages like uh, Malachi 4.2, says this, then shall the son of righteousness, this attribute of those who fear the Lord, the Lord's name, it says, then shall the son of righteousness rise with healing in his wings. And that's a very, very powerful thing. And it continues to rise. And as healing extends, then the sun rises higher and higher. And what happens when the sun rises? You go from the dark redness of early dawn to the fullness of day. There's a process by which there is continued healing increasing across the world as the sun of righteousness continues to rise. And it rises on the healing that is the effect of people applying God's word to the world at large. Uh, if you look at Psalm 1, not only is it talking about people, what, with uh, whose act as trees planted by rivers of water with leaves that are for healing, if you will, but how's it start? They meditate on God's law day and night. There is the law of God pinned right to these trees. They become agents of the law of God being realized in real life. And that realization of God's law being walked in creates the healing effect that is brought out by the Puritans when they look at the exact same passage in these trees lining the river of history in Ezekiel 47. Because that's what it is. It's a river that starts very, very teeny and gets wider and deeper and bigger every uh, you know thousand uh, cubits that Elijah walks through it until he can't, until he's almost, he's almost swimming in it and drowning. <laughs> right. But that's right. the river of history. And there's more and more trees lining the sides of that. Uh, and that's us. We're the trees that are to be the agents of healing. God uses us for this purpose. And, Very but we need good. to, but we need to use God's word to be the mechanism by which the healing is realized. That's where you get your band-aids. That's where the, the medicine is to come from. Not yeah. from humanism, not from the state, but from the kingdom of God. And it is a kingdom of healing. Yes. So listeners, Arise and Build is the publication. It's the bi-monthly newsletter of the Chalcedon Foundation. Martin's article is entitled The Scope of Healing. You can find it on our website. And if you like having regular communications from Chalcedon, you can subscribe to our newsletters. 
Martin, thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy and I'm just grateful that we've got someone who not only understands the writings of Dr. Rush Juni well, but takes the whole of scripture, puts us in front of us with a remedy on how to make the crooked straight. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. Yes. Listeners, you can always reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you until next time. Thanks for listening to out of the question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.